Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, we started a new series last week looking at Matthew's story of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. Uh, at perhaps the height of Jesus' fame, at the height of his popular support, he told his disciples that he was heading to Jerusalem to suffer and eventually to be killed. And as uh, Jesus made that journey to Jerusalem, the crowds that had gathered around him start to slowly peel off away from him. The opposition against Jesus increases. And then eventually on the eve of his death, even his closest friends leave him alone. That road to Jerusalem is both hard and beautiful at once. It leads to Jesus' death, but it is also the road that leads to life for you and for me and for the world. So this morning, uh, we're going to look at what happens right before that journey begins. So I'm going to read from Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20 for us. You can follow along where it's printed in the order of worship, or you can follow along in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read from Matthew 16. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we just uh, sang together those words where, where we said that we are praying uh, that, and we expect that you will come and speak your mighty word to us. And of course, you know those of us uh, who sang those words and weren't, weren't really even thinking about it, and you know those of us who sang those words and felt that sense of expectation. You know those of us who are here this morning who don't even really know what words like that might mean. But what we ask now in this moment is that you would bind every one of us together in meeting us. That you'd meet every one of us in the places where we find ourselves this morning. Those of us here who don't have faith and those of us who do. Those of us who feel really close to you and near and those of us who feel very far from you. Father, meet all of us and show us the grace of Jesus. That Jesus who is at the heart of this story, who asked that question, who do you say that I am? We pray this all in his name. Amen. Well, back when I was uh, about 12 or 13, my buddy Dave and I signed up for a Red Cross babysitting course that was being offered at a local hospital. Uh, I honestly don't remember all of the things that led to us signing up for it, um, but I'm sure that it had something to do with thinking that maybe having a legitimate credential uh, would allow people to uh, think that we would be good to hire for babysitting jobs and therefore it would lead to extra cash. Uh, 
this was not, in fact, what happened. Um, people weren't really excited about me watching their kids. Um, but anyhow, there are things about that class that I remember very vividly and very distinctly, very clearly. First of all, I remember that it was uh, taught by a nun. And for some reason, I remember her name, Sister Marie Seaton. She was uh, pretty no-nonsense. I guess she played uh, to type in that way. I also remember that me and my buddy Dave were two of only three boys in that class, that big babysitting class, go figure. And I also remember very clearly what it felt like to be called up to perform CPR on Rasasa Annie. Uh, maybe you're familiar with her. That's what they called the, the CPR training mannequin. I don't know if they call her that now, but that's what Sister Marie called her, as in, Aaron, why don't you come up and show the class how to resuscitate Resusa Annie? Now, I realize <clears throat> that roughly half of you here this morning have never been 12-year-old boys. Um, but I hope that that will not hinder you from understanding just how utterly jarring Sister Marie's invitation was to me. It was wildly, wildly mortifying. And at the same time, I don't think I have ever laughed as hard as I laughed then in my entire life. Because what I had to do um, as a 12-year-old boy was approach a roughly anatomically correct mannequin of a female and in front of a room full of girls and a nun, I had to put my mouth on its mouth. And I confess I was unable to complete the task. I tried, I tried as hard as I could, I tried many times, but I could not stop laughing long enough to get enough breath in my lungs to breathe into that poor thing. And at the time, I just kept thinking, why in the world did I agree to do this? Why did I sign up for this? It is not what I expected. And I tell you that because I was thinking this week about the Apostle Peter and wondering if he ever looked back on that moment we just read about and thought the same kind of thing about that moment. What did he think that he was signing up for? <laughs> When he stepped forward to tell Jesus who he thought Jesus was, did he think he was going to be commended in the way that he was commended? Did he think he was signing up to be called the rock? Did he imagine, did Peter imagine ever in his wildest, most far-reaching dreams that Jesus would begin reconstituting the shape and the structure and the mission of God's people right there, beginning with him? I would guess that he did not imagine that. Because Peter knew himself. <laughs> and at this point in the story, we have a pretty good picture of Peter too. He's, he's just a guy, a family man, a fisherman from an insignificant town. He's impetuous. He's big-hearted too. And he runs a little hot. But Jesus does something with him, and he does something with the rest of them that day that no one in the world would have ever expected. 
And you and I, every one of us who are sitting here this morning, are part of that thing that Jesus started in that moment with Peter. And our place in that, just like Peter's place in that, begins with all of us answering that same question asked insistently and quietly by Jesus. Who do you say that I am? So the story begins, Matthew tells us, in the district of Caesarea Philippi. That is a very, very strange place for Jesus to have taken his friends. The story that we looked at last week ended with Jesus and the disciples getting into a boat and sailing north on the Sea of Galilee. And so now we know that once they reached the shore, they continued walking north for probably 25 or 30 miles. It would have taken them several days, at least two. Caesarea Philippi was essentially a fully pagan city. It was as far north in Israel as you could get and still be in Israel. It was a border place. It was a liminal place that rested between God's people and the rest of the world. Caesarea Philippi used to be called Panius in honor of the god Pan. In fact, there was a shrine in Caesarea Philippi to Pan, But as of late, it had taken a backseat because Herod the Great had built a temple, a temple to the Roman emperor in Caesarea Philippi. And then more recently, Herod Philip had arranged, enlarged that city and renamed it to honor himself and another one of the Caesars, another one of the emperors, Tiberius. This is where Jesus had taken the disciples a place strewn with reminders of the powers that be. All of the collected power of their own land, all of the collected power of the entire world was in some way represented in that place. It's interesting, isn't it, that this is the place where Jesus takes them? And under the shadows of these temples and these shrines and all of the power that they represent, he asks them, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? He's asking them what the word on the street is about him. And I find it incredibly instructive and incredibly fascinating that Jesus has waited a long, long time to ask the disciples this question. It's instructive to me, but it is not surprising to me because this is Jesus' usual style with people who follow him, with his disciples. He is often circuitous and indirect. Sometimes he's cryptic, like we saw in the story last week where he mentions the sign of Jonah and doesn't explain what it means. Jesus does things like this all of the time. He answers questions with questions. He speaks in parables and then doesn't tell anybody what those parables mean. He is happy with the long game. And I think that's at least partly because who he really is and what he is really up to in the world is not something that comes easy to people like us. And so he is patient with them for sure, but with us too. He wants those disciples and he wants us to to really think about him and who he is 
and to find our own place in that, to puzzle it out and figure out where we fit into it. And I think the question that would be good for us to begin to consider, at least, is how do we respond to his patience with us? So you can easily imagine that this is a moment that they have been waiting for a long time. It's easy to imagine that they're thinking, okay, finally Jesus is asking us the stuff that we want him to ask us. Now we're getting somewhere. And so they just tell him who people think he is. And basically, the people think he's one of the wild ones. You know, one of the prophets, Elijah, Jeremiah. Some people even think that he's John the Baptist, which is strange if you think about it. Because John had only recently been executed. Uh, old Herod believed. He was absolutely convinced that John the Baptist had come back to life as Jesus. You can read about that in Mark's Gospel. But there is a thinness to all of these guesses. And they know it. I mean, of course, he's like one of the prophets. Anyone can see that. But he's more than that, too. So finally, Jesus asks them, But who do you say that I am? The question they've been waiting for, and now maybe it begins to make sense why Jesus has taken them there to that place in the shadow of all of that power to ask them this question. And before anyone else can speak, Peter speaks. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're the Messiah, Jesus, and we know it. Not just a king, we know you're the king. Church, here's what this means. It means that they had come to the place where they see Jesus not simply as announcing good news to the world, but as in some way being the good news. They have come to the place where they realize Jesus is not just preaching the good news, he is the good news. And I could probably never overstate how important that is for them and for you and me too. So they tell him, we, we know who you are. <laughs> You're the final son of David. You're the one whose throne is, like we heard in the Old Testament lesson this morning. They say, Jesus, we know that you're the one whose throne is for all generations. We know that you are the king, the king who's going to overthrow all of our enemies. You're the king who's going to restore us. And then you're going to spread the rich, restorative, healing, redeeming power of justice and peace out across the whole world. It's you. <laughs> so who do you say Jesus is? Who do I say he is? This is where I want us to come back about that, to that idea about Jesus' patience and his willingness to take the long road with people like us and sorting out the answer to that question. I mean, every one of us here this morning, every one of us here is somewhere on that continuum of grappling with who Jesus really is. I mean, some of us here this morning are not convinced yet, like the disciples were in the wait-and-see mode. 
right? checking the church out, checking out the claims of Jesus, not sure what to make of everything yet. And of course, others of us here this morning are with the disciples in that story. We agree that's who Jesus is, and we follow him like they did in faith. Maybe if that's you, you, you can't even remember a time where you weren't a Christian, but there's this growing sense that maybe following Jesus should mean more It should mean more in the living out of your life than it actually does right now. I mean in the flesh and blood of everyday life, the fruit of your faith in Jesus should show up more. But there are parts of your life where that isn't yet true. You know, maybe in the choices that you make at work or in even how you think of your vocation in this world. The choices that you make in relationships, the choices that you make with your money, your time, your resources. And of course, there are others of us here this morning who might imagine ourselves and even think of ourselves rightly as further down the road of faith, more mature in our faith. We think as often as we can about following Jesus with those parts of our lives that I just mentioned. Except there's this one part. There's this uh, one room that we're definitely not going to let him in. And we hope no one ever asks us what's behind that door. It might be the thing that you pray about every week during confession. And you want it weakened in your life. For sure you want it weakened in your life, but just not yet. So all of us, we're all on that continuum somewhere. And all I'm saying is that the thing that's going to move any of us further along... The thing that's going to push us further down that road, either into faith for the first time or into growing up in our faith, the thing that's going to do that is a growing, alive sense of who Jesus really is. So what does Jesus' patience in your life look like around this question of who he really is? Where is he playing the long game with you? answering your questions with other questions that are not easy to answer. Placing you inside stories and telling you stories and setting stories all around you that are not simple to figure out. Leaving traces of himself that are completely unmistakable in your life. See, I think this kind of patience that he has with us is the kind of patience that should lead us to to look at the stuff that's happening all around us and to ask ourselves, is Jesus gently trying to get my attention? Or maybe is he not so gently doing it? I don't know. It could look like a million different things, I think. Someone maybe that you love, that you know is a Christian, that you admire, has come alongside you and asked you about your life. And and you don't know why, but they're, they're showing an interest in you. Or maybe you just have this general sense that you feel unsettled and you don't know why you feel unsettled. Or maybe it's the opposite of that. All all kinds of doors are opening for you more than your competency could account for and you're wondering why in the world is is all of this happening in my life? Or maybe uh, maybe you've gone through some suffering. I, I don't know. I don't know exactly what Jesus is doing in your life, what patient thing he is doing around this question of who he is. But I'm sure he's doing something. 
And he is patient. And he is insistent. So whatever it is, don't put it out of your mind. (laughs) Do the opposite. Mull it over in your mind. Because in answer to that question, who he is, a deepening understanding of who he is and what that means in our lives always leads to forgiveness and to good and to flourishing. That's why he asks the question. And of course, this goodness and this flourishing and this forgiveness in this life is exactly what happens to Peter. I mean, he... He had no idea what he was signing up for, but he signed up for it. Peter and all of the rest of them had put enough of the pieces together. They know who Jesus is. Now, we'll find out next week. They don't really know exactly what that means. But Jesus' grace to them, his love to them, his goodness to them, and to us is not dependent at all on us figuring everything out. And the evidence that that's true is what Jesus says. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. That's what Jesus says in verse 17. He uses Peter's family name. Blessed are you. Happy are you, Peter. Not because you figured this stuff out in your own flesh and blood, but because my Father who is in heaven revealed it to you. And this is a really good day for Peter. Not too shabby. For a fisherman from Galilee. But the things that Jesus says next are almost unfathomably good. Not just for Peter, but for us too. John Calvin, the Reformation theologian, has such a great line about this. He says that Jesus did not speak this to Peter privately, but wanted to show where the unique felicity of the entire world was set. Jesus says this not only for Peter's happiness, but for the happiness of the whole wide world. And why is that? Because Jesus' words to Peter make it clear that he is making and gathering and redeeming and freeing a people to himself. And those people... He calls the church. In, in the Greek language, which is the language that Matthew's story is written in, the name Peter sounds an awful lot like the name Rock. In Aramaic, which is most assuredly the language that Jesus was speaking, those two words sound almost identical. So that explains the wordplay that Jesus uses in verse 18. Your Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Jesus tells Peter that he has a crucial role to play in the church. In fact, this is what he says to Peter. Peter, I am giving you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. This is where that persistent image of St. Peter at the pearly gates comes from, which is a great setup for jokes and stuff and cartoons, but that is not what Jesus is talking about here. (laughs) What Jesus is talking about here is Peter being given the authority to keep the church to its witness. He's talking about Peter being given the authority and the means to keep the church persistent in pointing to its true king, Jesus. If you were here last week, you might remember that we talked about Jesus giving an alternate reading of the world, the true story of the world that cuts through all of the jumbled and false stories of the world. 
And it is the church fueled by prayer, the church immersed in Scripture that offers the whole world that alternate reading. The one about Jesus' life and death and resurrection and ascension for the forgiveness of our sins and the restoration of the whole creation. And of course, if you read the book of Acts, you know that this is the mantle that Peter happily takes on for the life of the world. He's not alone, of course, like we heard in the New Testament lesson. Jesus is the cornerstone of this thing, built on that rocky and sturdy foundation that Peter and the rest of the apostles provided. And that place is the place where you and I find our home if we follow Jesus by faith. That is, I think, at least part of the felicity that John Calvin was talking about. We find Jesus in the church, but we also find one another, and we're not alone. And, Jesus says, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, I'm sure that as Jesus was saying all of these things to Peter, uh, very little of it made sense to him or to the rest of the disciples. Maybe this phrase, especially. Because the gates of hell or the gates of Hades, which is the word that Jesus uses, was one of the ways that first century people talked about death and its power. As in, once you pass those gates, there's no hope for you you don't come back. And Jesus is saying, somehow, somehow those gates are going to lose their power and that the people that he is gathering to him and healing and redeeming towards himself, they're not going to have to fear death. Now Peter and the rest of them, they, they couldn't possibly understand what Jesus means by that, but we know because Jesus is headed to Jerusalem where he is going to lay aside his power and give up his life so that he can defeat the power of death forever. And it is that part of Jesus' identity. A king, the king, that gladly suffers and dies for his people. It's that part of Jesus' identity that will be the hardest for the disciples to grasp. And of course, it's at the heart of the way that Jesus not only proclaims the good news to people like us, but is the good news for people like us. Who do we say that he is? Let me pray for us. Father, it seems like a lot to ask, but here's what we ask, that you would help us, all of us in here, to find our place beside Peter in the story. Because we know who we are. We know the anatomy of our own lives, our own makeup, our own identity. So help us to find our place beside him where you have revealed to us who Jesus is. And we believe. Father, we ask that you would do this for our good so that we could enter into faith or, or we could grow up in our faith. And we ask that you would do this 
so that we in love could turn out into the world with love, your love. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.